Meet Reed Lance Rosenthal, rancher, number one best-selling award-winning author, and unabashedly, unapologetically on the right side of the outstanding issues of our generation. But don't try to fence him in. Sometimes his positions will surprise you because Reed is definitely his own man with his own opinions. You might love him, you might hate him, but you won't be able to stop listening. Step over to the right side with Reed. Howdy listeners from coast to coast, the Gulf to Canada and around the globe. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Well, we're into September. I hope you had a great Labor Day. Lots to bring you on the show as always. First of all, I think it's probably apropos giving the, uh, you know, the lies we're being told by our government and the run amok Federal Reserve to go into the history of fiscal and interest rate policy in the United States of America. Because you will see how they pull the strings like little puppeteers of the economy to make all us puppets dance. And then we'll have the rest of the story. And of course, we'll have our founder's quote and our rant story. And we're going to have an update on Hawaii because all sorts of things are coming to light. And with every passing fact that is verified, it gets stranger and stranger and more insidious. And I have a bunch of videos on the website to go along with all of this and the rat-a-tat-tat that I'm going to be bringing you, which is going to be a bunch of rat-a-tat-tat over a wide range of subjects. New COVID studies, new COVID jab studies, economic stats that somehow the mainstream media just isn't bringing to your attention. Imagine that. And, oh yes, some gun control things bubbling in Congress with the help of rhino republicans wow what another surprise they're just full of surprises up there in dc and in the state houses around the land but with further ado since we got miles to go before we sleep let's begin first our founders quote thomas jefferson again i'm kind of on a thomas jefferson roll here and fitting since he's the guy who drafted that incredible declaration of independence quote experience hath shown that even under the best forms of government those entrusted with power have in time and by slow operations perverted it into tyranny unquote and our ranch story well you know the other day we had to gather up some horses and it took oh we called a neighboring ranch i won't go into the details with you but we had people on horseback and we had people on atvs and running around and it was quite the scene i mean really beautiful you know horses with their necks outstretched legs flying dust rolling tails straight out as they galloped hither yither and yon getting herded to where we needed them to go we had to sort a few out in a round pen that's up in the summer pasture and it occurred to me that this was a classic example i mean could we have gathered them just two or three of us maybe just on atvs or maybe with one rider and a few atvs yes But it would have taken a day. It would have been lots of brain damage. There would have been all sorts of mishaps. But you know, by getting together with a neighboring ranch, and we will help them out with something in the future, and having a bunch of people focused on a single intent and working as a cohesive team, we did it in just an hour and a half. And the moral of this story is, know your community, know your neighborhood, know your team for the times that are coming. Because whether it is defense or offense, Or for that matter, anything whatsoever in life, teamwork is a key, and it'll get it done way better and way faster. Let's talk a little bit about fiscal policy of the United States. It's That's almost an oxymoron right now, isn't it? I told you last week, 
or maybe it was the week before, it doesn't matter. But you know, since up to 1913, when the Fed was established by our first progressive president, Woodrow Wilson, oh, terrific, we had had basically zero inflation in the United States since the 1770s. That's 1770 to 1913. And then, since the Fed's been established, inflation, by government statistics, folks, this is not my numbers or pundits' numbers, is up 2,920%, about to breach the 3 thousand percent level. Now, inflation, as we all know, it can also be stated another way. The decrease in the purchasing power of the dollar. And since the Federal Reserve, I'll throw this out as a riddle for you, is not a government institution. Go back to my history of the Federal Reserve and banking and currency, etc. Those shows on the rightsideradio.com. Since it is a private bank, which nobody seems to really kind of, you know, get a full grasp of. Who are all these fluctuations in money supply, how much money is in the system, and interest rates? Who is really benefiting by all these fluctuations in money supply? And the ups and downs in interest rates, and the sale and repurchase of T-bills and T-notes and T-bonds. Gee, let's scratch our heads a little bit. Who are the shareholders of the Federal Reserve? Hmm. Who began it? Hmm. Who owns its stock? Well, you know, it's not the American people. I'll leave it at that. Fiscal policy basically refers to the spending programs and the tax policies that a government uses to, quote-unquote, guide the economy. And governments, and you have watched it now, particularly over the last five to ten years, frequently use fiscal measures along with monetary policy, that's interest rates, to achieve economic goals. Or, in the case of the current government, economic and ideological goals. You know, the stimulus to green energy, the slap on the wrist, the financial slap on the wrist to oil and gas. Supposedly, the goals of this combination of fiscal policy and monetary policy is full employment, a high rate of economic growth, and stable prices and wages. Well, I guess they're not doing too well on those goals, are they? So the way fiscal policy, you know how interest rates work. I mean, basically, you raise interest rates, it decreases the flow of money, it decreases money supply as long as the morons in Congress aren't passing trillion-dollar total wastage bills. And it slows economic activity, which supposedly dampens inflation. Fiscal policy, though, is the policy that comes from, like, taxation and the policies that come from government spending. And supposedly, these are the primary tools that are used to conduct fiscal policy. You know, if, like, the government lowers taxes, it'll lead to an increase in consumer spending. If folks are paying less taxes, they have more money in their pocket, they spend it on other things. And it also increases overall consumption. And remember, we're a 70% based consumption economy, unfortunately, right now. And business investment, that all stimulates the economy. And by the way, government spending on public works, you know, like the Green New Deal, that can help boost economic growth too, so long as it's not wasted away and frittered on bankrupt companies and failed projects, failed, in fact, before they come out of the ground. Think about Solyndra. Thank you, Barack Obama. And if the government increases taxation, the opposite happens, right? People are going to spend less. If the government reduces its spending, there's less money going into GDP. Remember, I told you over the last several weeks, 
GDP, that GDP figure that they keep flashing, oh, we're doing great, 2.4%. Folks, that includes the deficit. GDP includes all government spending. That includes the military and everything else. So take all that away. You know, the $6 trillion that's being spent. And what do you come up with? Oh, that's right, a negative GDP. So there's three types of fiscal spending, now that we kind of went over what it is generally. Mandatory spending. That's like entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, etc. Discretionary spending which includes spending to, oh, finance various administrative functions, you know, like all these departments and agencies who think that they are Congress, who think that their power is unlimited, who ignore Supreme Court decisions that tell them it's not. And I guess you could throw immigration in there, you know, the give or take $300 billion we're spending on illegal aliens every year. Just ask New York City. They say they're going broke. Sanctuary city that they are, of course. And all the other little pet projects of a government, many of them ideologically driven. And then there's supplemental spending. That's used for budget items that require even more money, kind of separate aside from the normal operations, to be approved and spent. We can kind of call up lots of things like that, right? Like, oh, you know, 87,000 new IRS agents, $10 million in guns and ammo for IRS and ATF and etc. In the 20th century, right, this is basically 1900 to the year 2000. Fiscal policy rests on a government's decision, very simply, to spend more or less than it receives in revenue. And what does a government get in revenue? There's only two sources. We've gone over this a million times, your wallet and your property, folks. Up until the early 20th century, which was the Great Depression, right, the 20s and 30s, most governments on the planet, including the United States, rightfully thought that the best way to approach fiscal policy was to maintain a balanced budget. What a novel event, particularly for a government that hasn't even had a budget for a decade. And it was around that time, you know, the Great Depression, that this guy by the name of John Maynard Keynes, I'm sure you've heard the name, K-E-Y-N-E-S, he suggested that fiscal policy, you know, the spending of government monies and allocation should be used countercyclically. In other words, the government should use its influence to offset economic extremes, one of expansion and one of contraction, one of inflation, one of recession, booms and busts. In a nutshell, Keynes believed that the government's budget should be in deficit, in other words, spending more than they're bringing in, when the economy is slowing. And it should be in surplus, <laughs> he was assuming that the surplus would be used wisely, of course, when economic growth is booming, which usually is accompanied by inflation. Keynes was keen, how's that, on the idea that the most effective type of fiscal stimulus is when it's financed by government borrowing. Oh, and what are we seeing today, folks? $34 trillion plus unfunded liabilities, rather than raising taxes or cutting government expenditures. Yeah, who would want to shrink the government? We wouldn't want to do that. His concepts, though, kind of changed a little bit when World War II came around. So government expenditures were like going through the roof, obviously. There was like zero unemployment in the United States during and just after the war. And by March of 1947, true to form, consumer inflation you probably didn't know this, reached over 20%. That's right, over 20% inflation following World War II right here in the United States. And the stock market, you know, your pension plans, your KEOs, your IRAs, your K, all those deals that many of you have money in began a sharp descent. And it was around this time that the Federal Reserve, who by that time was already bungling its job, began to either overstimulate or 
understimulate, if you believed in Keynes's theory. And the result was, instead of kind of a smooth graph line on the economy, or smoother lines, be they slightly up or slightly down, in other words, stability, you got a series of shallow or sharp recessions and a series of shallow or sharp expansions. In other words, a rather jagged line along the graph. And then, of course, you have politics. And there's always been politics in every country in the world, including the United States. Obviously, they're a little bit out of control now. But it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, it seems. 99% of the folks that govern us, they have a really, really hard time cutting government spending. You know, they have a really hard time. It's like almost impossible to do. And of course, even though many of them would like to raise taxes, and trust me, that's coming in your future, they hate doing it any time around an election. And along with that stuff comes what's called in this big theory of, you know, government interfering. And we're going to talk about the here in a minute. Government interfering with the capital markets, with a free market economy, and always over-pushing or under-pushing, never getting that stable line, never letting the markets work. We have another little factor, and it's called the automatic stabilizers, quote-unquote. And by the way, these automatic stabilizers, which are entitlements, basically, they were first put out there, they said, of course, to help the people, but really to buy votes. And of course, once a politician is buying votes or a political party is buying votes, they really don't want to give up that voting base, so they really don't want to cut that spending. And automatic stabilizers are taxes, unemployment insurance, welfare programs, uh, in the last three years, the $2,200 a month that we're sending out to illegal aliens who are coming into this country, never mind the free cell phones and all the rest of the goodies, while the people in Hawaii, who we'll be talking about later in the show, got $700 per family for losing their house and everything they owned and their business. Do you see how ideology plays into fiscal policy? What are the things that Keynes kind of jumped up and down about? Was that a progressive tax system was very important. In other words, people at the lower end pay less as a percentage, people at the higher end pay more. Personally, I think a consumption tax is a much fairer tax and does really about the same thing. He who has more money spends more money, pays more tax, and vice versa. However, that is not today's discussion. But it's thinking in Keynes circles and the circles of modern monetary theory where deficits don't matter, you know, MMT, I've told you about that in the past, that this progressive tax system will smooth these economic cycles, right? A disproportionate share of these taxes that are collected can boost the nation's treasury. Well, not when you're spending every dime plus trillions every year, but this is a theory. Or temper spending activity from higher levels that might have resulted if you didn't have a progressive tax system. Hmm, let's think about that for a moment. How well has that worked? Unemployment benefits, one of the other automatic stabilizers. So during a recession, people who are out of work can get income assistance through unemployment insurance. Of course, that's paid by businesses, and that's a cost, which is paid by consumers, and we won't go down that rabbit hole, but you see how this works. There is no free lunch. On a larger economic scale, the Keynesians argue that these types of programs, unemployment insurance, and to a lesser extent, this argument about universal basic income, which is more complicated, but they can help prevent disposable incomes from dropping to 
levels that are low enough that would risk further slowing the economy. You see, it's all it's all what's best for us, folks. They don't want to they don't want to decrease these expenditures because that will slow the economy. And that's really not good for you. Supposedly, according to the theory, the situation reverses when demand for labor picks up, unemployment pay drops, tax revenues increase, and expenditures decrease. Well, they forgot about the expenditures decrease part. The Keynesian theory that governments hide behind, because that's really what it is. They don't use it, really. They hide behind it. That approach to fiscal policy, maybe, possibly, could have helped to smooth out the cycles, but only if, and Keynes thought people would do what was best, not what was politically expedient. If, and I quote, policymakers remain committed to the strategy, unquote. Obviously, I've given you a number of examples over the years and just in the last 10 minutes as to why that is not the case. Money is not used wisely, and the more money that's spent, the better. And any spending which has been approved in the past can never be curtailed now. And I do believe I promised you the rest of the story. So I want you to put your thinking caps on after what we've discussed in all these various shows. History of money, history of banking, history of Federal Reserve, and today, the history of fiscal policy in the United States. So we have learned that the government, through the Federal Reserve even though the Federal Reserve is privately owned and somebody else is making the profits relative to that bank, or should we say setting up economic conditions where they can make profits in other places. We know that they can slow the economy. We know that they can direct fiscal policy to benefit certain groups and to hurt certain groups. So let's put it on our thinking cap. We know that the government is globalist. We know that the government, uh, should we say, doesn't tell us the truth. And that the government has communist and socialist heavy influences, along with foreign influences from adversaries, Russia, China, Iran, all of whom we know have given money to our president and his family and to many others throughout the government. It's called bribes. And we know that the government, shall we we say, has a penchant for control, whether it is through censorship, whether it is through psyops, whether it is through election fraud or election, should we say, rigging. They love control, they love power, they love money, and they have an ideological bent. And we know that Barack Obama is right now in his third term. He has said it himself. I've brought you those tapes. And we know that Barack Obama, when he was elected in 2008, another PSYOPs campaign, told us he was going to fundamentally transform America, and America should just be another seat at the table of nations, and you didn't build that, and brown-skinned people are oppressed, and whiteies aren't good guys, and that he hates colonial powers, which he considers the United States, Europe, and basically the Western world to be. Now, if you take all those basic uncontrovertible facts, and you combine them. The question I want to ask yourself today is, what would happen if the interest rates keep going up? Because the deficits keep going up, and more T-bills and T-bonds and T-notes have to be sold to finance the deficits. And you have to raise interest rates to attract buyers, since, once again, intentionally, We've basically pissed off every country in the world, particularly the countries outside the Western, the U.S. team, shall we say it, and they don't want to use dollars, and they don't want to buy treasuries anymore, China, Russia, etc. And we did this by stealing $600 billion plus interest from Russia in a so-called sanction, which of course led the rest of the world to not trust us anymore, not that they did to begin with. 
Now, if you take all those facts, these aren't surmises, these are facts. What is the end result of the Federal Reserve twisting fiscal and monetary policy to achieve an end result where Americans and people throughout the Western world, should we say, are economically crippled? What is the basis of all wars? Economics. And I think we can assume as fact that there is an ideological war within the United States and the West, that is, internally, and there is certainly an external war, quote, with the Eastern Bloc of countries, both economically and militarily, Iran, China, Russia, North Korea. So the last thought I want you to ponder is, what is the result that our quote-unquote leaders, illegitimately and fraudulently installed, wish to achieve with this manipulation of fiscal and monetary policy? Are they really trying to get inflation down, as they claim? Are they really trying to reach reasonable full employment, as they claim? Are they really trying to raise the standard of living so Americans are more comfortable and more safe, as they claim? I'll let you ponder that. We're going to talk about it more next week. But I want to bring you to Hawaii. I told you I was going to keep following this story because it stinks to high heaven. And the more the mainstream press does not cover this story or any aspect of it, the more I'm convinced the stink is there. Been over this for two weeks with you. This is the third. Let me tell you what we've learned in the last week because more and more is coming out. As you know, if there was a school shooting and five kids, ten kids were tragically killed in that school shooting, the mainstream media would be all over that shooting. You'd know the name of every kid, you know, that they were valedictorian, that they were a football player, etc. The parents would be interviewed. You know exactly what would occur. Well, we now have, and I'm going to show you the figures from the Hawaii Department of Education here in just a moment or share them with you. We now have 2,025 missing children in Lahaina, Hawaii. And the press isn't saying a word, not squat, not a peep. It makes you scratch your head just a bit. And information is being suppressed on social media. Let me run this down for you. So the official word is is that there's 1,054 people, give or take, still missing. None of them children. These videos are all on the website, by the way, and you should really watch them. This is from Hawaiians on the ground now. This is not pundits or people, you know, trying to manipulate facts or twist your emotions. And there's a lot of them. The mayor and the police chief, who also happens to be contrary to Hawaii law, coroner, and by the way, was the police chief in the Las Vegas shootings, 500 plus wounded, 52 plus killed. Remember that three years ago? They won't give out a list of missing children. In fact, they won't even tell you how many of the approximate 130, give or take, because once again, the numbers are fluid, of the people that they've identified as died are children. Supposedly, the FBI, which of course we can all trust in this situation, is doing a list. In the meantime, we have FEMA down there, although nobody on the ground seems to have seen FEMA, with their director, who is a communist shill, She was the gal in charge, listen to this, of New York's COVID response. You know, when 10 or 15 or 20, we've never really gotten to the bottom number, elderly people were sent back with COVID to nursing homes to kill the most vulnerable that we have to protect. The result was high-end 25,000, low-end 10,000 elderly deaths that could have been avoided. She was the gal who came with that policy that Cuomo implemented. She is now in charge of FEMA, with everybody, rhinos and Democrats alike, singing her praises, I might add. There's an interview of her on the website. You should watch it. I'm sure you have pretty good energy feelers. 
You tell me if she's sincere or not. But in the meantime, while she's in Congress saying that FEMA's running out of money, FEMA, who doesn't seem to be seen anywhere in the site, shall we say, is staying in $1,300 <laughs> five-star hotels in Hawaii, having a good old time with, by the way, we found out a liquor budget. Oh, yes, there's a liquor allowance for those poor guys in FEMA working their butts off to help these disaster victims that were given $700 per family. $700 per family. While illegal aliens who come into this country are getting $2,200 a month plus free lodging, free medical, free cell phone, you name it. But it gets worse. And I'm going to have the rest of the story at the end of this little segment for you too. The State Department and the Hawaii Education Department, I think they slipped up, but they both admitted that 2,000 plus the, I think the exact number is 2,025, children are unaccounted for. And we'll get to those numbers in a moment. Let me give you another little factoid. Do you know who has land over there on Maui? Bezos, Oprah, Zuckerberg, and a guy by the name of Ellsworth, who also owns a neighboring kind of unnamed island, a private island, you know, kind of like Jeffrey Epstein's private island, but in the opposite ocean. And do you know who Ellsworth is? Ellsworth was the founder of Oracle. Oracle is the behemoth tech giant who maintains the, shall we say, nationwide database on everybody and who works closely with and gets loads of contracts. You know, little crony capitalism from the CIA and other government three-letter departments. And did you know Ellsworth used to work for the agency? Hmm. It's amazing how all this works. And did you know that Ellsworth is building kind of this massive resort, you know, kind of like Jeffrey Epstein did over on this neighboring island across the water from Lahaina for the rich and famous. And did you know that all these rich and famous people, of course, have oceanfront property and that those are private beaches under Hawaii law? So you can't really go on there and you can't monitor what goes in and out of the beaches on boats. So now that I've given you kind of that background stuff that's now starting to come out and just beginning to percolate and circulate. The Hawaii Department of Education said there were 3,001 students enrolled in the Lahaina schools. There were two elementary schools, one intermediate school, one high school. Two were damaged, two have reopened. By the Hawaii Department of Education's own numbers, 538 students have re-enrolled in schools as of a few days ago or other schools on the islands. 438 are taking distance learning, you know, in other words, online classes. Did you know that the day of the fire, the cell phone towers were apparently turned off and nobody's cell phone worked in Lahaina? Did you know that they turned off in the morning all the water to the city? There was no water. Did you know the first fire department folks, apparently, based on witnesses, didn't show up until either late in the afternoon after the fire was done with its rampage or the next day and did you know absolutely positively that every main exit from that town was blocked off either with barricades or by police so that people couldn't leave you'll see in one of the videos a line of burned out cars along what's called front street which was right along the ocean that's the main north south highway and that was the main way out of lahaina you should listen to those videos about what happened in that line of cars and how many people probably died in that line of cars because they were blocked from exiting the town by police. Did you know that students were sent home somewhere around 9 o'clock, it appears, the day of the fire? And of course, both parents working, they're not at the house either, if that's where the students went. Because 
And the numbers vary by one or two buses, but you'll get the gist. You can listen to the videos and make your own determination. The Lahaina school system had 16 big buses and 12 small school buses. Supposedly, the kids were brought home by buses. But now, after the fire, sitting there pretty as a day, unburned, there's only four small buses and four big buses. Somewhere along the line, 12 brand spanking new, take a look at the videos, big school buses and two small school buses disappeared, gone. Where did they go? They're not in the burned out charred remains of the city. They're not in the school bus parking lot along with the remaining buses. Where did they go? I'm tracking this down, but it is apparently, apparently, these buses have been found at the airport. Now, the government was quick to scramble to try and cover the fact that the buses were located at the airport by saying, oh, well, you know, early in the morning we evacuated all the tourists from Lahaina, which leads one to scratch their head and go, wait a minute, there was no warning siren for the residents. Police wouldn't allow them to, and this is proven, leave the town or the roads were barricaded. But without telling the residents of the town, the business owners of the town, the, the people who lived there, the school, the whole nine yards, they went in there and got all the tourists out of town? Is there something they knew? How did they do that? Or did they do that? You know, a fire is really convenient, particularly when you have a 1,000-plus missing people and 2,000 unaccounted for children, because they can always fall back on the, well, you know, it burns so hot that there's just nothing left. We can't identify anything. We just don't know what it is or who it is or what gender it is or what age it is. How convenient. The bottom line, folks, is just doing the math, using the government statistics, by the way, which I think they kind of blew coming out with. There's 2,025 missing children. It's that simple. Watch those videos. Rat-a-tat-tat, under the audio bar, under corruption, and I think some are under family safety. Something is very, very wrong. And there's a video from an arborist there. It's very interesting. So this hot, hot fire, which reduced all the houses to white ash. You know, that's not the way a house looks when it burns down, folks. It has black, charred stuff, wood, etc. These homes are reduced to white ash. The metal parts of cars have been melted. I mean, they run out in puddles. You'll see it on the videos. This is intense heat. They estimate 2,700, give or take, degrees. A forest fire, a wildfire, which this was termed, burns at about 1,400 degrees. But what's really interesting is where the fire didn't burn. What wasn't demolished? Like, you know what it didn't burn? It didn't burn the leaves on the trees. Oh, I'm not making this up. Take a look at the videos, particularly the arborist video. It's quite shocking. And as the rest of the story, because I'm going to keep following this for you, I want you to understand that a government who could do this, a government who could at the least, withhold information. Watch these videos where they refuse to answer questions about how many children died and how many children are unaccounted for, etc. Is really capable of anything. But we've seen that over the last 10 or 20 years, haven't we? We've seen the unequal application of justice. We've seen people, should we say, meet unfortunate ends. So for the rest of the story, let me leave you with these two thoughts. There are only two direct energy weapons facilities that we know of in the United States of America. One is in Nevada and one is in, that's right, Maui, Hawaii. Let me give you another little tangent on the rest of this story. Josh Green, the Democratic Socialist, and I'm being kind, governor of Hawaii, on July 17th, this is roughly three weeks before this fire, he had a law passed and signed an executive order that basically allows him, if he declares an emergency of certain types, 
a natural disaster emergency. And a wildfire is a natural disaster, folks. It gives him a complete unfettered discretion. I'm not sure it's constitutional, but this is what exists in Hawaii right now, three weeks before this fire. Over all housing and structures in historical areas. And Lahaina was one of the key historical areas of all the Hawaiian islands. And it allows him to bypass and suspend all laws in order to reconstruct the city or, shall we say, redistribute the assets that are remaining. And of course, they have no plans for a smart city or maybe getting Oprah some more land or Zuckerberg whatever or having a direct little line over to Ellsworth, this is island. I would, you know, that's just surmise. I will tell you though, and this is not surmise, Japan and Hawaii have a long-planned joint conference on, oh, smart city development on September 25th, scheduled in Hawaii. I will continue to bring you updates on Hawaiian stories. In the meantime, watch those videos. And now for our rat-a-tat-tat news, etc. Well, let's start with Burka Water Systems. Many of you probably have them. They're pretty much reputed to be the best on the market, maybe Zero Water too. And the EPA, you know, the EPA, because they're looking out for us, they have decided that they're going to shut them down or screw with them in some way because there's pesticides. And you know what they've labeled a pesticide? The silver in the filter. Now, last time I checked, silver has huge medicinal properties, huge curative properties. Is it possible they don't want you to drink healthy water? Yeah, you can think about that. Food. You know, uh, nobody's talking about it, particularly the mainstream media. But there's a little food problem out there, particularly when it comes to grains for certain types of pastas. You already know about India limiting their exports of rice to a certain type and basically to nothing. And India supplies 25% of the world's rice. You know, just a kernel or two. But it seems that the unions in the docks all around America, and particularly in California, oh, big surprise, they're slowing down work. They're kind of doing a quasi-strike. And there are ships lined up, and by the way, that goes down to the Panama Canal also. There's ships lined up, like 140 ships lined up waiting to get through the Panama Canal, which also has a water problem. It doesn't have the level to float some of these big ships. And on the West Coast, you have ships backed up for miles out into the sea waiting to unload. But oh, it seems the unions are only working, you know, part days. They're not all coming in, etc. There is $6.2 billion worth of goods, most of it food, stacked up off the coasts of the United States. And, <laughs> you know, you saw the price of rice kind of skyrocket. Well, you're going to see the price of pasta skyrocket. This coupled, gee, is this a coincidence? With drought, believe it or not, drought, despite all the wet stuff that so many areas of the country have had in the Midwest and particularly in Missouri, which has pretty much decimated the corn and wheat crops. Same thing over in Europe, which, by the way, is staggering. If they're not in recession, they're as close to it as you can be. Fuel prices are up 30% just in the last month over there. I mean, we're talking about 8 9 $10 a gallon. They measure things in liters, but that would be the equivalent. And Durham wheat, which comes to Italy not only from Italy and surrounding areas, but from Canada, whose stores of Durham wheat are down roughly 50%, is in short supply in Italy. And Durham wheat, because of its protein content, is like the staple ingredient in pasta over in 
Italy and that area of Europe. So, you know, uh, (laughs) I wonder why things all happen at once. Must just be coincidence. And over in China, you know, they were hoping that China would pull the world out of the mess that the United States and the Western world have kind of precipitated with their idiotic and insane COVID and monetary policies, you know, their fiscal policies like we were talking about. And the Chinese, you probably have heard this, their economy is based literally like 30 to 40 percent on real estate. That's right. Believe it or not, China has 65 million, that's 65 million, vacant housing units right now. And in China, very interesting, you pre-buy your house. So you take out a mortgage even before construction starts and you pay on that mortgage monthly. Well, guess what? The two largest developers in China, Evergrande and Country Gardens, are in big trouble. Evergrande declared bankruptcy. Country Gardens is teetering. They couldn't make a 20 million yuan. That's about, I don't know, six or seven million dollars. Interest payment. So they're now in default. And all the people who are paying mortgages to those two companies for homes that have either stopped in the middle of construction or never even begun, why don't we say the Chinese are getting just a little bit perturbed? And there is a lot of unrest in that country. The government owns all the land. You don't own the land under your home or your apartment or your condo or whatever. The government owns it and you rent it. And then we have some economic nastiness. The the budget deficit in the United States has doubled from projections. Thank you, CBO. Thank you, White House. Uh, you know, when your lips are moving, they're lying. Has doubled to $2 trillion. And this year isn't over, folks. It's over in October. That is the federal year to year. Biden is out there telling us that he has the deficits under control, that he's bringing them down. Well, I don't know. Let's buy old Joe calculator. Show him where the buttons are. America's personal savings have collapsed by $5.5 trillion. I brought that point to you last week, since April 2020. And part of that has to do with inflation. American savings has sunk to under 2% of income. I mean, that is terrible. One of the worst in the Western world, actually. And as I told you, the GDP is being artificially boosted, and then they're using it as a psyops to tell you how great things are. Like, let's take... For instance, the Inflation Reduction actually should be the Inflation Amplification Act. $1.75 trillion, that all, folks, goes into GDP. And then they tell you how good the GDP is because the government, remember our friend John Keynes, remember fiscal policy because the government is spending money like a drunken sailor and increasing deficits like a intentional idiot. The largest item in the U.S. budget now, folks, is servicing the 32 and rapidly climbing trillion-dollar primary debt at a cost of $1 trillion at today's interest rates. Oh, fiscal and monetary policy. Here we are again. So what happens when debt service payments, if interest rates go up, and as the debt, obviously, is destined to increase, start consuming the entire federal budget? I wonder where they're going to come for the money. Hmm, let's think about this. And here's some other stats for you. Household debt, $17.1 trillion. Mortgage debt, $12 trillion. Auto loans, $1.6 trillion. Credit card debt, $1 trillion. And all this stuff, folks, is at really high interest rates. Think about my rant story last week where folks didn't have the money to buy books. Credit card debt averages 25%. New car loans now average 14%. Used car loans average 9%. And a 30-year mortgage hovers 
either side of 8%. And you know what? The fiscal and monetary policies of the Federal Reserve of the United States government aren't done with screwing with you yet. And, you know, this whole fiscal policy thing and all the stuff that's going on and monetary policy, it comes down to control. So at the lowest levels, the the boots on the ground level, the banking system is being weaponized like everything else in the Western world to enforce ideological agendas. Imagine if you're a dissenter, you know, from the prevailing view of the woke elite on politics, culture, healthcare, doesn't matter. You are now at risk of being debanked, particularly if you're still in one of the CFI, the too big to fail banks, which I've warned you about for years. In other words, if you commit wrong think, you don't have a bank account. And the latest and greatest thing is that insurance companies are now getting into the debanking fray by saying, if you have certain type of business, we're not going to insure you. Try running a business or getting a loan, if you can find a bank to work with you, without insurance. As you probably know from just buying your home, it's impossible. You know, Donald Trump had his Florida bank accounts closed when he disputed the 2020 election. He had his accounts closed at Deutsche Bank, which, you know, is not a real stable institution anyway, for committing wrong think and political reasons. Robert F. Kennedy, who I think is terrific, by the way. I mean, that's the dream team. Trump, President, Robert F. Kennedy, Vice President. Both of them hate the deep state. More on that in coming shows. But Kennedy, this is a billionaire family, has had his nonprofit organization threatened with bank account closures at the specific request of the Biden administration, who, of course, don't like a Democrat running against them in the primaries. And Kennedy is charged with the thought crime folks of spreading vaccine misinformation. Oh, heaven forbid. Joseph McCullough, an outspoken doctor, great, I have a lot of his articles on the COVID page. Just had his bank accounts reactivated by J.P. Morgan Chase. How nice of them. And anti-globalist, the British politician, Nigel Farage, who's terrific. He, he led the whole Blexit move. He was blacklisted by his bank for having the wrong political beliefs. Farage is now warning that banks are beginning to work with credit bureaus. Think about this. To review customers' political speech as part of kind of a de facto, you know, a hidden, a concealed Chinese-style social credit system. Oh, how nice. Back in 2013, Obama, who we're going to talk about quite a bit next week, his third term now underway. The Obama administration launched Operation Choke Point. Do you remember that? That was to push banks to crack down on high-risk business clients, you know, anti-establishment clients, like gun dealers and payday lenders and coin shops. And, of course, any business with a high volume of cash transactions, which they hate. And, of course, it was only to protect us poor people, us American people, from fraud and money laundering. (sighs) I feel so safe. This is laughable, of course, with the corruption running rampant in Washington, D.C., starting with the president, his son, and his family. And last but not least, we have a new COVID study out from Switzerland. Unbelievable. It's on the COVID page and it's on the COVID litigation page too. It's also under Rat-a-tat-tat and under the audio bar. Basically, these guys with no help, that's right, no interference by big pharma or government, went out and studied a control group, non-vaxxed, and a non-control group, the vax group, 777 people, literally for years, from the time they got the jab until now. And guess what they found? 
one in 35 have myocarditis. A far greater percentage have other heart ailments. Another percentage has neurological problems. The study is rather amazing, and the link to it is on the COVID page, and we're hopefully going to have it on the home page too. It is peer-reviewed and it is pre-published. In other words, it's about to be published with full peer review. So even the censors, although they can do anything they want, are going to be rather hard-pressed to interfere with it. But listen, that's not to stop the CDC, who just <laughs> who just approved new COVID shots, new boosters, and 1.4 billion flowed from President Cadaver to Pfizer to gear it up. And you know, Pfizer... Ah, Pfizer's on the ropes. Stock way down, profits way down, they're almost in the red. I'm telling you, five years from now, Pfizer won't exist. But, folks, if you have a claim, bring it. Bring it. We're out of time. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Remember, look in the mirror, repeat after me, and repeat it with conviction. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and around the globe who love freedom as I do. And we will win. Oh, yes, we will. Keep the wind at your back. I'll talk to you next week. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Reed Lance Rosenthal on the right side.